Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing a song for the dreaming of the world that we may On March 31, 2008, Sammy Rizzuli took Eau Claire by storm with his visit to several area schools, time live on WHYS LP Radio, and in a personal interview with me for Northern Spirit Radio. He was squired on his travels by Mike Miles of Anathoth Community Farm, a center for the study of nonviolence, community, and sustainable living outside of Luck, Wisconsin. Sammy Rizzuli has lived roughly half of his life in Iraq and the other half around Minneapolis, Minnesota. He spent about eight months of the past year on the ground in Iraq as part of the Muslim peacemaker teams, so he's very much in touch with the people, politics, and passions of Iraq. Let's first listen to Sammy as he addresses an audience brought together by the staff and faculty for peace and justice at the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, after which I'll visit with Sammy individually. Here's Sammy Rizzuli at UWEC on March 31st. Salam, shalom, peace. Good to be here. When Maliki, five days ago, addressed Muqtada Sadr and his followers in Basra, order him and them to surrender and give up their weapons. The response was, if you drive the occupiers out of Iraq, we will do so. Now, given the fact that Maliki is a Shiite, and before the election took place in 2005, he needed al-Sadr and his movement because al-Dawa party, which al-Maliki is the head of that party, political party, they didn't have the base. So he needed the followers and he asked Muqtada al-Sadr to get alliance with him so he can win and Muqtada helped him. His followers elected al-Maliki. Al-Maliki became the prime minister since 2005. But Al-Maliki always was asked by the U.S. administration, by the U.S. occupation forces, you got to get rid of the militias. First of all, the renegade, the thug, the radical young cleric, Muqtada Sadr and his followers. And he goes, well, how can I do that? The guy and his people brought me to power. This is what we're going to do. We give you the information that you need but the U.S. forces should go after his 
leadership figures, himself, and other Sadris that you think you should get rid of. So the Maliki supplied with the info, and the U.S. began attacking the Sadris. Now Maliki is Shia, and the Sadris are Shia too. I am too. I was born there. But my wife is Sunni. When I pray as a Shia, I was brought up to pray, directing myself to Mecca, and just leaving my hands on the other side. My wife is a Sunni. She was brought up to do the same prayer five times a day. She crossed her hands. She thinks this is more humble and obedient. Now, my kids, of course, her kids, watching us. And they came up with very reconciled gesture like this. <laughs> so one for daddy, one for mama. What's the big deal? Another sect. Very modern, very clever, intelligent. To restore stability and security, do your things without violence. What you hear, of course, not in the beginning of attacking Iraq, invading Iraq, occupying Iraq. That motive or the reason that driven the U.S. forces was looking for weapon of mass destruction. Remember that. And that serious issue ended up as a joke. Let the president looking for the weapon of mass destruction in his office under his table. And one of the funniest moments, and that was an insult for our intelligence and for all those lives, 4,000 so far that lost in that stupid war. For 1.2 million Iraqis estimated by Lance's studies and the Iraqi body count. To listen to the president talking about what happened in Basra just five days ago, describing the fight as defining moment. Of course, it's a defining moment. For whom? For the surge, because he said the surge, see, it's working. How is it so working? We learned that the surge helped the violence goes down. But what happened in Basra, in Baghdad, in Kut, in Amara, in Nasriya, in Najaf, it tells us that things are fragile and they are in hold, hanging there, because the U.S. occupation is still in Iraq, trying to divide Iraqi people. So the agenda and the purpose of the whole war occupation will stay in place. Also the president said, this war is a, a challenge and a test to Maliki to keep law and order. And he knows, the administration know. I don't know how many people of you. In Iraq, no law above the American law that applied to the US, US presence in Iraq. But which law the president meant? I tell you, the Iraqi new oil law that privatized the Iraqi resources, namely the oil, and allow U.S. oil companies as well U.K. companies be in control of 88% of the Iraqi wealth. That is what Muqtada Sadr, what are the resistance element of the national 
Iraqi fighters been doing for the last five years, opposing the U.S. presence, opposing the privatization of the Iraqi resources. They are opposing also to divide Iraq to three phony states. Now, not only the Shiites, the Sunnis, the Kurds, and others. So, is really the surge is working. As you see the images behind me, as I would like to report you, that beside the 4,000 men and women in uniform died for the last five years, beside the 27,000 disabled men and women in uniform who were treated and still treated poorly at the hospitals, beside the 1.2 Iraqi people who died for the last five years, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of injured. There are five million orphans today in Iraq, one million widows, seven million Iraqis are under the poverty line. I was once, last August actually, in the green zone doing some business at the lunchtime. My American counterpart who works at the embassy invited me for lunch. And here at the buffet, I mean, everything you wish, just like a part of paradise. Five sorts, different kind of apples, pineapples, lobsters, beef, lamb, you name it. But behind the 12 feet high cement wall, there are the rest of the Iraqis, the red zone. 25 million people still surviving on that ration, daily personal ration food. Oil for food program since 1996 still operating. And Maliki himself, his government realizes that if that program is abolished, then there will be no Iraqi government anymore. Because people in Iraq will starve to death. They are starving right now. Unemployment is up to 65%. The only jobs available, but you get to pay bribe. Up to three salaries of $700 a month to be a policeman or a soldier. And there is an estimate of one million police and soldiers are on the ground in Iraq, deployed everywhere, but still we don't have security yet. In Basra alone, there are, as the commander-in-chief of the policemen in Basra reported, 462,000 police already hired in Basra. But every time there is a crime spotted in Basra, they found behind it policemen. <laughs> Those, the newly formed policemen and newly formed army, the National Guards, their loyalty is not there for Iraq as a country, for the government, which is the current government, central government, is not for the Iraqi people. They represent their sects, their ethnic background, political parties. Like what happened in Basra, most of those policemen and army individuals who were sent to fight the Sadris, they took off their uniform, they gave up their weapons and joined the Sadris. 
or simply went home because they want to keep their jobs. Is the surge working? Absolutely not. Because any Iraqi that I met, I ask, do you know about the surge? So what does that mean? I spend most of the, my time in Najaf. Najaf is about 100 miles south of Baghdad. Najaf is not affected by the surge because those extra additional 30,000 troops that sent to Iraq, they were mainly to secure the capital and the area surrounding the capital up to Diyala provinces. And they are talking about they want to attack Al-Qaeda in Mosul. So they are moving from Baghdad up to north and to, to Mosul area. Mosul area is about 250 miles north of Baghdad. The surge means flood of things. And in this case was a flood of extra soldiers. And what does those 30,000 soldiers mean for a Texan food contractor? Certainly, that will mean an extra 90,000 meals a day. Those meals that I've seen in the green zone, they were not made in Iraq. In the green zone, I couldn't find an individual Iraqi working there as janitor, a worker, a technician. No, because they are not trusted. The people are hired in the green zone. They are paid daily. No, not monthly, daily. $500 up to $1,500 a day to make sure that food is available. So don't wonder why the taxpayers here, American people are paying $12 billion a month. This is what caused the war in Iraq. That's $720 million a day. $500,000 a minute. The food that I've seen is shipped daily. Where I live in Najaf, I never hear the sounds of planes stopped. Planes comes in and leaves, come in and out, in and out, in and out. While Iraqi people beg, those are doctors, engineers, newly graduated, beg for employment, but they cannot find. So what they do? Of course, they seek alternatives. And there are lots of agencies, whether they are within the country or out of the country. Pay them to do things that hurt the country and hurt Iraqi people. Those policemen and army individuals, a new generation, I was never familiar to those people and still I don't know them. Because the people that I belong to, the generation that I grew up with, they are not in Iraq anymore. The middle class, technicians, doctors, engineers, they were forced to leave Iraq by the violence. More than 2.25 million, they left Iraq and the neighboring countries, according to the UN organization. And another 2 million, they got displaced within the country. They left their neighborhoods, their jobs, friends, and schools. And they are living now in tents. And nobody, nobody is taking care of them. Because even that personal daily ration formula of food are not getting this. 
It's only $15 a month per person who was calculated during Saddam's regime to stop starvation and hunger. So they calculated the minimum calories that human beings needs up to $15 a person a month. Now Iraqi people are getting this in little portions. Many items are missing due to corruptions and the failure of the government to keep the warehouses uh, always full of product that the Iraqi needs. 50,000 Iraqi women selling their bodies in Syria alone to survive and support their families back in Iraq. I spoke to one of those women in Syria, in Damascus. And I asked her, what if the war stops? Will you go back and stop doing this? She said, well, I don't think so. Well, why don't you go back and get married? Because Iraq is a rich country and things will get better. You will find a job. The person you get married have a job and you start a new family. She goes, nobody can afford what I'm getting now. I'm doing really good. I'll be continuing doing this. Is this the freedom and democracy that Iraqi people were awaiting for? I have a cousin, Madhat, three days ago, was killed. Government agent put a bomb under his car seat. He was a general when Saddam Hussein was in power. And he wanted to keep his job. He has a family. So he worked with the Americans and kept his rank as a general. He got promoted. He was working fine and as I got this phone call three days ago and told me, he got promoted but his home was raided by an armed and identified forces stealing everything valuable from his house, leaving a message that we know this is wrong to do but we will announce our apology in a TV announcement. In two days, in two days the announcement and TV was about his death. I met him last year in Najaf. He came to attend his uncle, my uncle, death. Died for aging reason. And he told me how terrible the life of women in Iraq. He said, I work with the Americans and I lied to them. I told them there are, we spotted some terrorists coming from the border of Saudi Arabia. And I was accompanying them with uh, uh, ground forces as well. There was air forces to get those terrorists, as he said. He said, this is the only way I could uh, convince the American forces to come. But my information was there were shipments of women about to be across the border to Saudi Arabia. So I came with this excuse to stop this shipment. And I was successful to stop that deal. He left behind him a wife and three kids. Is the surge good for the Iraqis? Absolutely not. The hundred miles I travel leaving Najaf to Baghdad, I did that four times last month. And every time I wanted to count the checkpoints, and this is something new, happened within the last 12 months since last, not this February, last February, February 2007 when the surge started. Every time I get around 60 to count those checkpoints and I get tired. But I ended up having an idea that each kilometer there is a checkpoint. 
from Najaf to Baghdad, fortified by armored vehicles, sniping position, uh, shooting area, and each section of the road monitored by blims, American blims, surveillance, its cameras, to see how the people are moving. But where are the people? No people left in Iraq, especially in Baghdad, the capital. The city of Baghdad used to be called Dar es Salaam, the home of peace. It's not the home of peace anymore. A city of walls. When you wander around driving like you're driving in a maze, walls are dividing communities and segregating the people according to their ethnic background, according to their sectarian background. And I just read between the lines. It's like a preparation. It's very well a plan put to divide Iraq in three sections. But Baghdad, it's impossible to divide because it's a mixed wide area of about, what, seven million people? The surge. A senior official, this is in the Maliki government, a friend of mine, and actually he's very close relative to Al-Maliki, from Tuwairij, an area belonging to Karbala province. Ali said, Sami, next time when you come to Baghdad, please, I want you to stay with me at home. First, when I met Ali at his office, he is dressed properly as a senior official, just like me. But as soon as he finished from there, we jump in the car, he changed his outfit and put the Dash Dasha, this is a long row. I told him why? He said for protection. Why is it for protection? Because I'm targeted. I keep receiving death threats. I keep receiving those emails and text messages in my cell phone. I told him, from where? He said, I don't know. Are you the only one? No, almost everybody works for the government. I told him, well, let me take your picture. He said, don't do that, we are washed. We get to his place, Haifa Street is the most, is known, the most dangerous place. You can Google Haifa Street, we'll find stories and stories about that street. These streets were designed for low-income people where they live in high-rises. But from the both sides, the Iraqi National Resistance Army took that street after it was evacuated from its residents to fight American convoys that coming back and forth, American patrols that patrol the streets. He told me he bought three apartments there to keep moving for protection. He left his mansion, big, nice, beautiful, fancy house, in Al-Mansur, upscale neighborhood, because he's targeted. Then he said, Sammy, you're leaving next month to the U.S. Would you please find a way for me to leave Iraq? I'm tired. I cannot live this way anymore. Well, you're enjoying a good position, and you're getting highly... Uh, I mean, salary, paid highly salary. And he said, well, it's a torture. I cannot stand it anymore. And he kept telling me, friends that he know who left, paying like up to twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 to be smuggled out of the country to one of the European countries. He insisted that I stay overnight in one of those Haifa Street's apartment to witness 
the after midnight raids by the U.S. forces with their police dogs sniffing, looking for terrorists. He has his own badge, IIZ, like International Green Zone badge, that won't help him. Neither my Minnesota driver license won't help me to prevent them from coming inside the house and disturbing us. One of them said, are you sure you're American? I told him, yeah. And my coat, and it, it wasn't handy. So asked me, where are you from? From Minnesota. He said, well, I'm from Minnesota. Where do you live? So I gave him an address where I used to live by Simbaz, downtown Minneapolis. So he said, well, uh, do you know the area, the suburbs? He said, I told him, yeah. What? Uh, Minnetonka. Tell me, how do you come from Minnetonka to Minneapolis? So I told him there are three uh, routes to get there beside the freeway. So he goes, well, how do you come from South Minneapolis deep to Minneapolis downtown? I'll take 35W North. I said, okay, he's all right. Let's leave. <laughs> but how about Ali if I'm not around? Ali always telling me he is insulted, humiliated, and yet he is part of the government that support the presence of the U.S. The U.S. Army, they don't differentiate who is good guy or bad guy. They are all terrorists. They are all our enemy. And actually, the U.S. chose to be the enemy. And this is what I hear most of the time by the Iraqis. They said, we never been the enemy of the U.S., but they chose to be enemy. And yet, we would like to be Americans, we, we thought we would be the 51st state. And they take care of us. They bring us the electricity, the clean water, the just basic public services that we need. It's five years already gone, and we're still poor. Yet Iraq is the most richest country in the region as far oil treasure that Iraq owns. Iraqi average people in the winter they struggle to get kerosene because their homes are not heated centrally. So they need to buy kerosene heaters and the kerosene is not available. Or you have to stay two nights waiting in, in your car to get fuel for your car, whether it's diesel or gasoline. And this is Iraq, believe it or not. A liter of gasoline cost, when Saddam Hussein was in power, only 20 dinar. 20 dinar, maybe 4 cents or less, 3.7 cents. Now it's 450 dinars. It's about 45 cents. The American dollar goes down, as you see every day, against the yen, against the Swiss mark, against the euro. But it's never changed again the Iraqi currency. Before the war, one dinar was equivalent to three dollars. Now the highest Iraqi note is twenty-five thousand dinar. So twenty-five thousand dinar used to be worth about seventy-five thousand dollar. But it's one bill. You carry it now in your pocket. Those what I meant, the blim, they are everywhere in Iraq. Before the war, I've seen them over Gaza and, and, and the West Bank in, in Israel. Now you see them everywhere in Iraq.
So how much a dollar now? A dollar is equivalent to 1,250 dinars. Why? We don't know why. But Iraq is debt-free, almost debt-free now. The debt that caused by the wars by Saddam Hussein, I understood James Baker III, he was a shuttle between Iraq and all the creditors that Iraq owned, owed. They wiped most of the debts. Why the economy is not flourishing in Iraq? Nobody knows. So the surge, is it working for the administration? Yes, for a short time. When John Murtha surrendered as a Democrat leader, and also other Republicans who opposed the course of violence, the course of occupation of this administration for a while. But when they listened to General Betrayas and Ambassador Crocker, said, wow, the violence went down. Of course went down, because the biggest force in Iraq that drive the country in a violence, it's the U.S. forces. They have the button. If they don't kill, there is no violence. If they kill, there is a violence. And who's getting killed today in Iraq more than the U.S. forces? The Iraqi police and the Iraqi army, because they drive in front of the U.S. forces and behind them for protection, using them as shields, and they drive trucks or pickup trucks, not Humvees or tanks or other armored vehicles. And they keep complaining. We don't have proper equipments, military equipments. This is the Iraqi army. Maliki himself, when if you remember George Bush last year, the year before 2006, was blaming Maliki. Is not doing job. We are not satisfied with it. Well, give us proper equipment, military. We don't have. And Rumsfeld at the time said, yeah, they have a point. We don't give them proper equipment because we don't trust them. The Iraqi army turn around and kill us. The Iraqi police do the same. It's just what happened five days ago when the military and the police took off their uniform and joined Muqtada Sadr fighters. So how are we going to end this tragic situation? The U.S. forces are not in Iraq peacekeeping forces. And the U.S. Army is not a charity organization that go and build schools, mosques, hospitals, restore electricity, or providing water treatment plants. No. They were and are still trained to be killer. And we need to demonize the people of Iraq so they justify their killing. I spoke with a group of Iraq veterans who are considering themselves winter soldiers who quit to go back and get involved in this failure strategies of war. They came back talking about what's going on in Iraq. So more and more American soldiers are realizing they are at the wrong place. So they don't do the service anymore. Besides the 4,000 that we are aware of after five years, those young men and women got killed. I learned from 60 Minutes, you might heard this, there are 60,000 GIs who left Iraq, came back 
and committed suicide. And how many GIs are back home but mentally destroyed, psychologically, beyond the repair? So how are we going to end this? People keep asking me, what's going to happen if this occupation ends now? My answer is peace, because occupation is form of war. As long as the war continues, there is no peace. But war stops definitely. People will evolve and will find ways, just like before, they will figure out how they accommodate each other when they get the responsibility and they get their country back. So be able to rebuild the country, be able to rule themselves, sharing the power. But the U.S. being there, siding with one side against the other, just like the peace in Israel will not find its way as long as the U.S. is siding with one party against another. This is exactly what's happening in Iraq. And I couldn't take it when I saw the president in Annapolis bringing Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, and Olmert, like children, tell them, stop fighting, make peace. But yet, you know, Mahmoud Abbas territories are occupied by the Israeli. And the guy who is trying, the godfather, trying to bring those people together, he's occupying Iraq. <laughs> I mean, how could this be reconciled? That's why when the conference of Annapolis ended, there was no, no peace, no, no, no further talks between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Ended up with more violence. You remember what happened in Gaza. And that what will happen in Iraq as long as the U.S. is engaging in double standards of set of foreign policies against Arabs and Muslims. And if this occupation not ended, I don't think the whole Middle East will be rest because this is again the international law, Geneva Convention, the UN Charter. And against two-thirds of the American people and more than 90% of the Iraqi people, they are asking the U.S. to leave Iraq and stop this madness. Muslim peacemaker teams that I represent, an effort as like a part of our work and an effort of bringing people to people together. So I came up with the proposal signed by Najaf province government council that I came from to Minneapolis council, Minneapolis city council to open a new page of relationship as sister cities where both cities can exchange experience, knowledge, visits that will reflect on relationship with an academic arena like exchange between universities, researchers, helping Iraqis to have a, a proper medical care and having those members of the Najaf government council come here and get trained. So probably this experiment will be a way of getting off the violence and isolating the people who are pushing for war and more death. And this experiment, if sees the light and be a successful one, probably will be duplicated by other cities and other states across the nation. Maybe we begin with this effort, peaceful, nonviolent effort, this year, the sixth year, 
hopefully, as soon as possible, the war will end. And that will depend mainly on the American people and Iraqi people. And from here, I ask for your support for such proposals, such initiatives. And also, I'm calling upon universities, schools, students to initiate kind of sister relationship with schools, hospitals, NGOs, and other organizations. The more we have this relationship with the Iraqis, which I believe American people owe them, so we can stop the breath of the revenge and the cycle of violence should stop at this effort of uh, peacemaking. And thank you very much. That was the main presentation by Sammy Rizzuli of the Muslim Peacemaker Teams speaking at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire on March 31st at a function sponsored by the staff and faculty for Peace and Justice. This is Spirit in Action, which Sammy surely is. And I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to this and other productions via our website, northernspiritradio.org. And you should also look there for links and info regarding our guests. We'll head back to UWEC and listen to some of the questions Sammy Rizzuli answered from the audience. One woman asked Sammy for more information about the Muslim Peacemaker Teams, which Sammy participated in founding. Muslim Peacemaker Team. What we do, with all respect to Red Crescent and Red Cross, we were ahead of everybody of those agencies you named. These organizations cannot be in Iraq right now because they considered associated with the occupiers. So any presence for any foreign organization right now, it's not recommended. We move across the country as Muslim peacemaker teams because we have this magic sheets giveaway as introduction to our organization. First thing we say, we have no political agenda. We have no ambition to get involved in any process of politics, and that's good. Second, we don't promote any religious agenda or sectarian agenda. What we do, we do peace. We bring people together. We go to Fallujah as well to Najaf, to Mosul as well to Basra. So what we did and helped the U.S. vet for peace recently, we helped them to install, they sent money, we installed purification systems in elementary school were received very happily by kids and stirred like love. And with this action, you, you gain the hearts and mind of Iraqis. And this is what we are looking for. When we open this relationship as like sister city, then we can do lots of things to prove to the Iraqis that we are Americans, peace-loving people. And this war is not in our name. Also, we started last year something called Letters for Peace, communication between young Americans and young Iraqis sending their letters to each other with pictures. So that's another hope for us, like the future. What kind of relationship will have those both countries? We, we have to start healing the wounds now. I mean, I don't want my little boy tells me when I ask him, what you're going to be in the future, said a pilot to, to bomb the U.S. 
And I don't want to see a young woman who getting her lunch at the cafeteria, one of the colleges, when she received a phone call says, your dearest friend got killed in Iraq and she just hid the tray of food and leave to get enlisted to go and get revenge from the people who killed her best friend in Iraq. We got to stop this. And we have to evolve and grow up and stop being children. Excuse me if, if I really call myself a new children because we're still violent, we are violent. We grow up in this environment. But we have to find a way to stop this first, inwardly, toward myself, toward my wife, toward my kids, toward my neighbor, toward people that I know. Because I know I'm violent, I still, when I get angry, I raise my voice, and, and I'm doing it now. When I get frustrated, I give those weird looks to the people I just disagree with. And that forum violence should stop beginning with me. Now, I told you I'm Shiites, my wife is Sunni, so I live in Najaf. I got a child because I got remarried last year. So September 1st, I got a boy. And the mother said, what should we name him? Omar, and Omar is a Sunni name. He's the second Khalifa, second Caliph after Abu Bakr. And she said, are you sure to do this? Yes. This is the reconciliation, and this is how I become peaceful. Well, like, what of you name his son Muhammad or Zainab? I challenge you if you do this. And I know you chicken to do it, but I give you, I give you really a good recipe. Name the first child Mo, the second Ham, and the third Ad. <laughs> At least when you get busted by the FBI, tell them, oh, hold on, they, they are Ad and, and, and Mo and Ham, they are not Muhammad together. <laughs> So, what we need really, we need to touch the mind and hearts of the people. You don't need to name your kids. Because in Arabia, Muslim people, they name their kids Maryam, Dawood, David, Yahya, Johannes, Moses, Musa, Isa, Jesus. They do that without any, I mean, just they do it because they love all the prophets and messengers of God. That was Sammy Rizzuli's response to just one of the questions posed at a session sponsored by the staff and faculty for Peace and Justice held at UW-Eau Claire. But I would also like to share with you his answers to some of the questions I asked him individually that day. Again, I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and this is Spirit in Action, a northernspiritradio.org production. And we're going to have a personal visit with Sammy Rizzuli, born in Iraq, former resident of Minneapolis for 20 years, and a founder of Muslim Peacemaker Teams. Sammy, it's so good of you to join me again for Spirit in Action. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. It was about two years ago, I think, that I last visited with you. Uh, since then, you've spent a lot of time over in Iraq, and I'm sure you can give us an update on more things going on there. But what I want to hear from you a, a little bit more about, having listened to you already at the schools here in Eau Claire, is some information about what the tenor of the feel of the religious life is in Iraq today. Well, we should understand here in the U.S. and the rest of the Western world that what happened in Iraq for the last 17 years since the first Gulf War that started in 1991 and followed by more than 12 years of harsh economic sanctions 
that crippled the country, followed also by the last five years of invasion and occupation. Those years of hardship drove lots of many kids out of the schools to be in the marketplace working hard to provide for their families. Those kids, which is the new generation right now, also, they, those kids couldn't stay at home to learn about their heritage, culture, custom, tradition from their parents. So they were away from home. They were away from schools. They stayed on the streets struggling to bring some money back home so they survived with their families. This generation, they are very vulnerable to adapt any wave of extremism, whether it's religious, political, or sectarianism. And you ask me about how the religious wave that right now taking place in Iraq, it's very dangerous. I should mention also the teachings of the extremist Muslims, whether they are Wahhabis, Salafis, or Al-Qaeda. It's a set of an ideology plus organizing like organization. You have this ideology of a certain Islamic teaching said that they capitalize on it to organize those groups who are violently right now finding their uh, way in Iraq to do harm themselves and do harm the society. Now, if you ask me, Sammy, how did this happen? why the extremism religiously found nurturing environment in the Arab world. And I can tell you this, the Iraqi society, at least the society that I'm aware of, the society that I lived within, I was born in Iraq, and I've seen, I've seen the different factions of that beautiful fabric of Iraqi society live together from all different sects, religions, and beliefs. But after 1948, the creation of the State of Israel, and creating a Jewish state that really extremist and fanatic religiously by creating that state while driving the Muslims, Arabs, the Palestinians from their homeland, which created a reaction, and probably chain of reactions, to have those Muslim extremist on the ground right now. You are lead organizer for the Muslim peacekeeping teams, and I'm curious of how that movement has been going. Has it been growing, and do you feel like you're having an effect the last couple of years since I talked to you? Muslim peacemaker teams has been established in early 2005. Since then, we've been working in different levels of education and making the people aware of nonviolent roots teachings in the Islamic education. So how much we have been doing progress and uh, achieving our goals, I think we will be able to evaluate our work next year. But we range our success between 1% to 25% to be effective in our society within Najaf and Karbala provinces where we held weekly training to educate our members as well, invited other members of different organizations, uh, whether they are uh, politically involved, 
tribal leaders from the universities and academic society and also farmers, workers, and also women, so both genders, uh, students, and religious leaders too. We held conferences, sessions to promote nonviolence. We went over some young people who thought this political party or that political party was working for them, but when they found about our activities and our bylaws and regulations and the things that we abided with as an NGO, then they stay with us and work with us. We uh, were involved in many projects. Among them, uh, we held 10 sessions. Uh, we invited, uh, again, representatives of different factions after uh, we explained that these sessions are about to create a national debate to review the newly adopted constitution, where the constitution was rejected by three Iraqi provinces. Those provinces and other people thought the constitution was written outside of Iraq and was written by different language and need to be translated. And when it was translated, it didn't make sense for most of the Iraqis. So that created problems. So MPT, Muslim Peacemaker Teams, were involved vigorously to bring people together and debate this constitution and bring their views closely. If this constitution will be rewritten in a fashion that accepted by all Iraqi faction, that probably will bring peace and nonviolent mean to discuss things and, and solve problems. So this is one thing we did in last May and June. Then September, I was able to fly to Uruguay when I was invited by the government university. They arranged uh, speaking tours for me to speak about Iraq at the end of that visit, which lasted three weeks. Twenty-three Iraqi students were granted scholarships to continue their education in Uruguay. So this happened in September. In October, we were able to form 10 MPT teams to go and educate about 100 households, restaurants owners, and staff to educate them about the healthy methods of hygiene, self-hygiene, and sanitation to prevent from getting sick by cholera that broke out in the northern Iraq, and there were about 3,000 cases registered 60 people died because of that disease. So MPT also got involved as a way and part of its activities to keep peace by educating people how to process some self-hygiene and healthy sanitation. Also, a team of Muslim peacemaker teams was able, doctors, actually three doctors, of screening an area in Al-Ansar vicinity. It's a suburb of Najaf where they found people were infected by cancer. The investigation of this research shed some lights about how the depleted uranium that was used by the U.S. forces as prohibited weapons that used in the war since the first Gulf War, Desert Storm Syndrome, if you remember that caused this, was caused because of the usage of depleted uranium weapon and also was used this time. So we got those cases in Najaf area and as well other areas that and send an alarming message 
to the authority and people who are interested to keep Iraq as a healthy society. But again, the war is not helping. So uh, the uh, task of uh, MPT representing by me, by educating people, trying to just stop the war and the occupation so the Iraqis could take care of themselves and could rule themselves without the outside influence. About how many people are we talking who you might consider members of MPT and how many people have participated in trainings and other activities that MPT has sponsored? We have right now about 30 to 40 MPT members who are committed to serve in the training session to represent MPT in different projects. And we have about 90 members who are considered in the advisory board and also they help part-time. People who got training through MPT, there are probably close to a 1,000 people. And those people, they simply learned about what we promote within the frame of nonviolent culture to help them to be aware of that Islam as a term linguistically is derivative from salam. And salam means peace, shalom. Shalom also is one attribute, a name of the 99 names of Allah, God. So a Muslim, whether she or he, submit themselves to Islam, that means submit themselves to peace. And Allah is peace. So any violation to that code by committing violence, that's break of the code for being Muslim, and she or he are not Muslims anymore according to the action of violence. And this is something new for many young people that I talked about earlier who never heard this before, who never got trained and educated, whether at home or school, to learn about this. So we consider MPT is an institution of education that do lots of work to promote nonviolence. We just had lunch a little bit ago. There were some aspects that I had asked you to clarify for me about Islam. One of them is around meals. I'm used to having grown up Catholic, saying a prayer before a meal. There's actually a prayer for after the meal also for Catholics, less known. As Quaker, which I am now, we just join hands in silence around the table. What is it that Muslims do around meals? Well, there are a couple of things Muslims usually do around meals. Before the meal starts and after eating, what we say in the beginning, actually we say, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which means in the name of God, the most merciful, the most gracious. And it's a recognition that this meal was not be possible without the grace of God. So always we should remember this. At the end of the meal, we say, Alhamdulillah, this means thanks God. Now kids, to urge them and, and teach them to do the prayer, which is Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, at the beginning of the meal, we just tell them, that if you don't say Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim then Satan will eat with you and maybe will eat the bigger portion of your food and then you will be never full. And again, Allah, God, always is center of a Muslim's life where 
Muslims pray five times a day. And speaking as Sami Rasuli, who was born in Najaf, not too far away from our father who was born, Abraham, in Ur, you are northern of Basra. Always I have to remind our listeners, our people, our kids, and others. Our Creator is one. The message of the Creator, be good, is one. And we are the people are one. It's a beautiful message to be sending out to everyone. From our brother, Sami Rasuli speaking throughout the Midwest at this point for the next couple months. Thank you so much, Sammy, for joining us for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Brother Mark, for allowing me to be in your program. That was Sammy Rizzulli of the Muslim Peacemaker Teams, back from Iraq for a two-month speaking tour of the USA. You can keep up with his news via the link on my northernspiritradio.org website to that for the Muslim Peacemaker Teams mpt-irak.org The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song.